The royal decree of the historic Gothenburg trial was issued on April 26, 1770. The Gothenburg consistory tried Swedenborg's writings for heresy without ever giving Swedenborg himself a hearing. When Swedenborg heard the decree, it was time to act. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, Curtis and I hear what happens to the 12 newcomers to the afterlife when they find out they've died in Act 3 of our spirit story. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose shares fresh insight into the purpose of the Lord's coming. Then we travel to 1770, when Swedenborg takes a stand in defense of his writings this week in history. All right. Hey, Curtis. Hey, Chelsea. Hey. So are you ready for the final leg of our spirit story? Yes. I feel like I haven't been thinking about anything this past week except the end of this spirit story. So let's (laughs) do it. Well, then not for your sake, of course, but maybe for the sake of listeners, here's a little review of where we are. This is our spirit story about this The arrival point in the center of the world of spirits where Swedenborg found himself with some angels and in act two, they decide to do some research by asking 12 randomly selected people what they believe about life after death. And sort of the twist is that these people who are arriving in the world of spirits don't know that they've died, that that's even where they are. So. And so we went through those 12 uh, folks and what they thought. And It's very M. Night Shyamalan, isn't it? Oh, you're going to have to explain that one. Oh, you know, he's the guy who <laughs> made um, The Sixth Sense. Oh, I guess if no one's, if someone hasn't seen it, I don't want to be a spoiler, but it was sort of that his, his trick was it always you found out somebody was actually dead. <laughs> Oh, great. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the like, yes, the final reveal or something. Yes. And so, well, so Swedenborg and these angels, we left them standing there dumbfounded at what they heard because none of these 12 people had anything enlightening to say about life after death. And here's where we left them off with what they said. They said, We were stunned to hear their points of view. We said to each other, although these people are called Christians, they are neither human nor animal. They are human animals. And when I first read this, I was like, man, that's some harsh judgment for just like some misguided ideas. Like nobody's taught, you know, maybe they just haven't learned yet about (laughs) life after death. So like, you know, yeah. But there's something deeper going on here. And that's what we're going to get into when we hear what, you know, the, the outcome of all of this is. So okay, here we go in Act 3. So, nevertheless, to rouse them from their sleep. So that's good. They, you know, they have hope for these guys. They say to rouse them from their sleep. We said, heaven and hell do exist, as does the life after death. You'll be convinced of this by the time we drive away your unawareness about the state of life you are now in. During the first days after they die, all people fail to realize that they are not still alive in the same world they were in before. The intervening time is like a period of sleep. When they wake up from it, they feel as though they are just where they used to be. The same goes for you today. 
That's why you just said the same things you thought in your former world. So <laughs> they're like, guess what? You're actually already in the afterlife. <laughs> and so the angels, so it says, then the angels shook away the people's unawareness. The people saw that they were in a different world with other people they didn't recognize. They shouted, hey, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> and they replied, not in the physical world anymore, we said. Now you are in the spiritual world and we are angels. Oh, that's kind of fun. Swedenborg saying like, hey, I'm, I'm an angel too. Yeah. He's like, come on, guys. Yeah, us angels. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. So as they woke up, they said, if you are angels, then show us heaven. Stay here for a little while, we replied. We'll be back. So I guess they had to go do, you know, some checking first or something. Because then they say, when we returned half an hour later, we found them waiting for us. Follow us into heaven, we said. They came and we went up with them. Because we were with them, the guards opened the door and let them in. To the angels who received newcomers at the threshold, we said, examine them. The examiners turned the people around and noticed that the backs of their heads were badly hollowed out. <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. The examiner said, go away from here. You enjoy doing evil and therefore you have no connection to heaven. In your hearts, you have denied the existence of God and have despised religion. We then told the people, don't delay leaving or you'll be thrown out. They hurried down and went away. And then here's how it closes out. On the way home, we discussed why people who enjoy doing evil would have heads that in this world look hollowed out at the back. I gave a reason. We have two brains, one at the back of our head called the cerebellum and the other in our forehead called the cerebrum. The love in our will resides in the cerebellum. The thought in our intellect resides in our cerebrum. When the thought in our intellect fails to guide the love in our will, the inmost structures of the cerebellum, which are actually heavenly, collapse, causing this hollowness. Woo! How bad is it, Doc? Well, <laughs> the back of your head is badly hollowed out. It's, it's hollowed out. And that just like, it changes the game because these people... It's not that they just don't have the right ideas in their head about life after death. It's the it's the revelation that they enjoy doing evil, you know? And so we might think, oh, they're just asking them about what their beliefs are. And even they, you know, I, I think it's sweet that Swedenborg and the angels are like, look, guys, you're actually in heaven. Let's just let's just show you heaven. Like, come on, we'll go do that. And then it's like, oh, whoops, what's the, you know, we, we realize the source of their you know, incorrect belief about the afterlife in this case happens to be there's this love in their will that is actually aligned with hell. You know, they enjoy doing evil rather than what's of heaven. Yeah, they probably suspect that. As you mentioned, when they're talking about, oh, these are, these people are like human animals. I think they're not too concerned right. about them having the wrong ideas, but they know that's probably like a lag indicator that yes. that you've got the the disease, which is you love to do evil, mm. and that that is what's and it's interesting that that description of 
you know, the two different parts of the, I mean, most people wouldn't say you have two brains. They'd say you have a brain with different parts in it because (laughs) the two are so intertwined and we don't really think of our beliefs and what we enjoy doing to be so intertwined. But here it's saying that, look, if, Mm. if you, if you enjoy doing evil, it is going to mess up. You are going to be incapable of having the, the correct belief system. Yes. And it reminds me of that other, I don't know what number it is now, but Swedenborg writes somewhere that, you know, angels, when we enter the next life, they don't ask what our beliefs have been, but what has our life been? You know, because it's our life, our love is our life. And that's what, you know, determines uh, our place in the afterlife. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it struck me as well when you were reading and they were saying, look, people just wake up and they think they're in the same place. How mm-hmm. the whole message of Swedenborg in some ways is that, oh, there's these two lives. There's the life here on earth and then there's the afterlife. But it's also that those are that's only one life. Like it's yes. so the same. It's so the core of it. Like I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, there's who believe in an afterlife think there's these two hugely different experiences, but that they're saying, look, you what you care about and what you focus on and and look at and and immerse yourself in that's so crucial that's so the core of what your life is that you can your body can die and you sort of don't notice because you're still just got your blinders on thinking Mm. about whatever it is you've invited into your sort of inner circle of life so it's just fascinating that yeah you can Sure, eventually you're going to notice that you're in a new plane of existence, but that's not the headline really for you. Right, right. Oh, it's so interesting. It's like, yeah, what you were just saying, that you wouldn't say we have two brains. They're so interconnected. It's like you wouldn't say there's two worlds. They're really totally interconnected. Hey, oh, that's that's a good callback. <laughs> there you go. Oh, wow. Well, there we've we've done it. We've concluded this spirit story and we've it's really been another, you know, this is the second in a series we've done, and it's giving us all these interesting, you know, perspectives on on the life after death, which is really interesting to explore. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate getting to tag along. Yeah. All right. Well, so for people who are tagging along with the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel, tune in tomorrow night, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time to catch our Swedenborg live show. And we have lots of fun there, so you don't want to miss it. Lots of fun uh, live interaction opportunities. So tune in 8 p.m. Eastern time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. And so, and then Curtis, you and I, let's catch up at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. All right. See you then. All right, here we are for the NCE Spotlight. Hey, Jonathan. Hey. So thanks for welcoming us yet again into the world of the NCE, where we get to shine a light on discoveries being made in your translation and editing work. What do you have for us this week? Well, I've been editing Secrets of Heaven Volume 3, as you may know, Mm -hmm. and I bumped into a pair of passages uh, that are too long to quote here. But number 2715 and 2716, which to me were so powerful. Some of these passages almost change your worldview or something. Mm. Um, 
And it was talking about basically two kinds of good people. There are good people that he would call the heavenly, who are Mm love-oriented. And then there are good people who are spiritual, who are truth-oriented. And he goes on what might seem like a pretty dark riff about what he's calling the spiritual there Hmm. compared to the heavenly. And it was so instructive and important to say he's talking about good people yeah who who um you know end up in heaven and all that but he says that the difference is that the heavenly people which were especially the earliest people on this planet and people on other planets which is a complication but um uh <laughs> were very love oriented yeah and love would feed their minds with an insight into truth they could tell what it was because they they could hold it up against love to see, well, which of these would be more loving and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And he says, unfortunately for the spiritual who came later and is still the type of person he was and we are and so on, uh, the will has been corrupted. And so the will has these evil desires in it. And these pollute the atmosphere of the intellect so that you can't really think straight. And you don't know what truth is because you don't have that love inside you in Mm. the same way. And so you hear things from your teachers, from your parents. Uh, You think certain things yourself and you hear other people talking about things. And so you construct a kind of sense of reality out of this. But it really doesn't hold much of a relationship to what's actually true. Uh, which hmm. doesn't sound very advanced to me. <laughs> and he says that these people, so they don't know what truth is. Another little problem they have is that they have no idea what love is. Yeah. And their <laughs> idea of love is something that serves themselves. Yeah, They're really only looking to themselves and their own good when they're doing things for other people. And uh, if they do something good, they certainly want to kind of sound the trumpet and let everybody know about it. Yeah. Uh, they think there's no other pleasure than the pleasures associated with greed and uh, self-centeredness. Um, they sound pretty awful. And I was thinking both about myself and about other people and sometimes feeling disappointed that why aren't people more angelic or, or more this way or more that way? And then I read this litany. It goes on for four, eight and a half by 11 pages of, in the you know, <laughs> manuscript that I'm reading. Um, and I just think, oh, okay. These are very, very disappointing people. And after all this um, litany, they don't know what truth is. They don't know what love is. They don't know how to be good to people. Uh, they're self-centered and, and, and kind of blind and deaf and all that. Then Swedenborg says something very surprising, which is that um, that that's the the only way they can be helped is by the divine human, uh, meaning mm. the Lord, meaning Jesus, who who was the the Lord born in, into this world. And the reason is that if the divine itself tried to help them, they're so far off the mark that it would just destroy them. 
mm. it would be devastating. It, you need to sort of step it down a little bit. And so it was very important that this come through that human side that, that was joined to the divine in, in the Lord. And then Swedenborg says it was to save these people that the Lord came into the world. Oh, wow. And that really kicked me because I thought of that scripture that's mm. where, where uh, the Lord says, um, those who are well have no need of a doctor. Yes. You know, the, the people who have love in their hearts and love helps them to see truth and everything, they're fine. They're going to be fine. They can see, they can feel, they can hear. <laughs> uh, and so when you hear this litany, you sort of think, yeah, this is awful. This is so disappointing and so awful and so off the mark. And then to hear at the end uh, that instead of condemning that, what the Lord says is those poor sweeties, they yeah. can't see, they can't hear, they don't know what's what. And I want to save them. I want to create a heaven for these, you know, what I would call kind of lackluster, <laughs> off-the-mark people. Uh, that's why the Lord came into the world. I can't really put into words wow. what it did to me. Mm. But I felt that love. Mm. And compassion, where if you, if you just had wisdom, uh, you would say, these people are hopeless, <laughs> you know, right. wrong in, in every way. <laughs> but they're trying. They just don't know. You know, and, mm. and they unfortunately have this load of evil in their will that's kind of polluting their mind. And, and setting them off track so they really don't know. But it was compassion for those people and desire to expand heaven, to include them into its embrace and to save them. That's why the Lord did all of this. Pretty amazing. Wow. Wow. Another quick point that I wanted to share was that I think I know the passage. You were I, I was at the water fountain and, and overheard you talking to Curtis. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about a passage about it's not, you know, what you believe or which church you belong to. Yeah, uh, it's, it's how you live been. your life. Yeah. Well, I happen to remember the, the, the number of that, which is Divine Providence 101. <laughs> and how I remember it is that I think that that principle is— Divine Providence 101, <laughs> like that's the most basic uh, course. That, that's the thing that you need to know. That's entry-level uh, wisdom is that it's about your life and not about these other labels. Wow. Well, just to sort of connect those two, if I can, like the, uh, you know, what you're saying about the Lord's coming and the divine human one, you know, that being the Lord wanting to find a way to save even those, you know, quote unquote, spiritual people, meaning sort of like the way their minds are built, that they have this, everything you just set up there, um, this way about them that has lost its connection with love and everything. Um, then you have the coming of the new church, you know, which Swedenborg wrote about, which is that there was this necessary new connection to the revelation that is contained in the word, you know, about the Lord sort of setting 
the spiritual truths of the word straight again uh, and to help to help all of us misguided folks. And I just sort of feel like in sort of a meta moment, what Curtis and I were going through in that spirit story about those 12 people who really don't have it straight. You know, they're, they've got the hollow backs of their heads. Like they've really lost that connection to love um, through their own, you know, choices. But like, there's also like, there's that compassion to think, you know, this, this time now, Swedenborg writing his books, even including that story, you know, publishing these books, getting this, getting these ideas out there is also coming from that same love, you know, understanding that they need to connect back to love. So, Right. And what you're saying is inspiring me to think about um, that statement in Isaiah that um, in that day, the the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be like seven suns or seven mm. days or something like that. It, mm-hmm. It's sevenfold increase. Um, uh, Swedenborg says that the spiritual heaven sees the Lord as a moon and the heavenly heaven, the celestial heaven, sees him as a sun. And uh, But there's an upgrade. Uh, it, it, in other words, it wasn't just to sort of lower the bar on heaven yes. to the point where you could sort of squeak through. <laughs> you know, let's call yes. it a D minus. Okay, good. You're <laughs> in. But uh, an actual upgrading uh, so it's beautiful to think of being able to reach out to those quote unquote spiritual people, you know, people who are somewhat compromised that I was talking about a moment ago, and get them to the point where they're in the light of the sun. Yeah, you know, to get them to a, a heavenly point where love uh, is more visible, and to to upgrade. The higher heaven to the point where it's sevenfold, <laughs> yes. um, you know, much, uh, much more light and warmth. And oh, that's awesome! Uh, so the Lord's love is um, don't ever count it out. It's it's that's a huge force in the universe. Mm. So great. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. This was awesome to hear about from you. Now, will you go with me to join up with Curtis to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history? I'd be delighted. All right. Hey, Jonathan. Curtis and I are here. Hey there. Hello. So we are going this week to the year 1770. Ooh. which is really is only two years before Swedenborg's death. He's 82 years old. And this week, he's about to put his foot down about this trial that's been going on in which his works have been accused of heresy. So it's quite the uh, journey we're going on this week. And so I want to say I'm going to be like, giving you this backstory, like setting the stage, and then we're going to get to this week. But feel free, both of you, to just like jump in whenever with with responses. You don't have to wait till I get to the end of going through all this stuff um, to to weigh in. So because there's there's just all very interesting stuff. So to set the stage. So we got to go back 
We're, we're pausing here in 1770, but first we're going to reach back to the summer of 1765, five years earlier, when Swedenborg met these two people whose fates would be intertwined with his. It was Dr. Johann Rosen, and this uh, Rosen invited Swedenborg to come dine at his home. And Rosen himself is a poet and editor of the Gothenburg magazine. So he was sort of this a literary figure that people respected. And also at this dinner was a man named Dr. Gabriel Anderson Beyer. And both Anderson, I mean, sorry, both Beyer and Rosen were teachers at what was called the gymnasium. But really, am I right, Jonathan, to just basically say like, that's like the countrywide theological school like it's the it's the preparatory school that's under the jurisdiction of the diocese or i guess some people who are training there aren't necessarily going to be ministers or something what basically what as far as i can understand theology made up 60 or 70 percent of everybody if you were becoming an engineer you yeah. know um that's what college was it was it was largely theology with a little science and other stuff yes. okay <laughs> right Okay, so teaching religion. So these two guys are there, and they're having dinner with Swedenborg, and they're very interested in Swedenborg's, you know, these doctrines he's been writing about, his experiences about the spiritual world, and they invite him for dinner the next day, and the next day, like, they are just getting more and more interested, and ultimately, Bayer and Rosen both become full advocates and believers of his of this you know of these doctrines of these ideas about the afterlife and christianity and everything they're just like on board 100% and part of the providence in this if i have the story right is that because of the tides you'd have to wait to get the right tides to sail on so he'd sailed that far but he was stuck there for about a week so he <sighs> had plenty of time to get to know these people and dine with them every night that's right that there's it was sort of this layover essentially that he's he's on his way somewhere and then uh and he has he gets to have you know dinner after dinner after dinner with these guys <laughs> so which people changes. complain about a three and a half hour yeah. layover you know but uh... <laughs> yeah try a week or a month or something so that's that and then fast forward now to the fall of 1769 so just before our time period there was a growing controversy and debate in the consistory over Swedenborg's doctrines. And this is partly due to the fact that Rosen and Bayer had both published recently positive sort of promotional things about Swedenborg's works in Swedish as well, which meant it wasn't just in Latin, so only the educated people would learn it. It was like anybody who knew just the common language of Swedish uh, could have access to these ideas now. And one of them, Rosen, uh, it was that he published a review of Apocalypse Revealed or Revelation Unveiled. And Bayer wrote this uh, or pr published a volume of household sermons, which I'd be so intrigued to, you know, look up and read sometime. Um, so basically, neither of them held back their the, the Swedenborgian ideas that they held. Um, and... So the fact that these two, you know, rogue Swedenborgians, Bayer and Rosen, they are teaching in the college that, you know, like trains the next generation of 
Swedish people, it was not cool to people who had come to oppose Swedenborg's ideas, who thought, you know, this is not, this doesn't jive with, you know, traditional Christian ideas. And two guys in particular were uh, Bishop Lamberg, I'm sure I'm just anglicizing his name, um, and the dean of the school, Dean Ekbaum. So those that's a name to remember. So put that in your mind. And so that same fall, unfortunately, Dr. Byer's wife passes away and leaves him with five small children. And he's he's like a good friend of Swedenborg. So he's writing to him regularly. And so he writes to Swedenborg, particularly distraught over the fact that at the end of her life, she was, he says, induced to deny the new doctrines which they had acknowledged as true together. Like he had this bond with her about these ideas. And then supposedly at the end of her life, she denies them. And Swedenborg replies and explains that her, you know, disordered state of mind and this denial that she made was actually due to the fact that there were two clergymen present at her deathbed, one of whom was Dean Ekbaum, and that it was like their uh, ideas about, you know, spiritual things that sort of infected her perspective. And so I want to read you part of this letter because... It's it's pretty intense. So here's what he says. This is Swedenborg replying to Dr. Beyer. What you relate respecting your wife and her dying hours was caused especially by the impression of two clergymen who associated her in her thoughts with those spirits from whom she then spoke. It happens sometimes with some in the hour of death that they are in the state of the spirit. Those spirits that first spoke through her belonged to the followers of the dragon, which was cast down from heaven, he's referencing the book of Revelation, and who became then so filled with hatred against the Savior and consequently against God's word and against everything belonging to the new church that they cannot bear to hear Christ mentioned. When the sphere of our Lord descends upon them out of heaven, they become like raving maniacs and seek to hide themselves in holes and caverns and thus save themselves. And he references another chapter in Revelation. Your deceased wife was yesterday with me and informed me of many things which she had thought and spoken to you, her husband, and with those who led her astray. And he says, I could tell you more, but only in person. I can't. I'm not allowed to write it. And then he says, P.S., you may show this letter to others, and if you choose, you may have it copied and printed. So this, <laughs> so <laughs> he is writing this uh, letter to Bayer, and this is in the middle of this like growing controversy where Swedenborg's, you know, ideas are under attack in the Swedish consistory. And he's calling out the dean of the college, Ekbaum, and saying he's like these dragon spirits or that he's associated with these dragon spirits. And that's why his wife acted so differently at the end of her life. And Bayer goes and gets this letter printed. So he just, it totally, uh, you know, infuriates the people in the, of the consistory. And there was widespread belief then in evil spirits. You know, it's not like today where a, a lot of uh, relatively secular or 
people with a materialist philosophy or something like that might be shocked by the thought of spirits. But that was widely believed then. And so to say that the clergy who people revere were in league with hell was a a really strong, uh, very offensive, uh, you know, allegation. Oh, it's probably political. Like there was probably, you know, if there really is this storm brewing around Swedenborg's works and one of his key allies has a wife who was also an ally uh, and she's recanted on her deathbed, the, the Swedenborg material that probably some people are telling that to other people like, look, look, it's falling apart. Uh, right, and so right. he's like, publish this letter because we want, want everyone to know that we're not we're not seeding her as a as an ally. Yes. And also, so in this same letter to Bayer, he says that uh, when he got to he's he's just returned from London to Sweden and he tells Bayer that he upon returning, he has this he gets invited to have dinner with the king, uh, which will come up later. But he also finds out that books of his had been confiscated uh, he had he had sent fifty copies of of Conjugal Love to Sweden, and he gets there and realizes that they've been um, confiscated, but none by none other than his own niece's husband, who's a bishop, Bishop Philenius. And he even goes to Bishop Philenius and asks him to, uh, you know, why are they being confiscated? There's nothing wrong here. Um, and he says, oh, "Okay, I'll deal with it." And then he doesn't, you know. And so he. That really gets under Swedenborg's skin that he was, uh, you know, even told him he would do something. And so I, I, I also think Swedenborg's just a little bit like, all right, guys, if you're not playing nice, you know, like we're, <laughs> we're pulling out all the stops here. So Well, and to him, it's it's um, pretty serious that the books get out. This was something that he believed re- directly reflected this souls were at stake people's souls mm-hmm. were at stake and so he's yeah i mean like no no no, we can't you can't do that and it's just sh- shocking and good to remember how much theology mattered in those days when when jonathan you were saying that everybody who wants to do anything in higher education you mostly just go learn theology and then yeah, you do right. some more it's just like yeah for swedenborg to be writing stuff against the prevailing theology was just like it was more than you think of when now if you think of someone put out a letters against the prevailing what like christian theology it's like this no that that was the load-bearing pillar of society at the time right not just like yeah conversations that are happening on various blogs or something like that <laughs> that's right not even on off the <laughs> yeah. so so this letter gets printed and the consistory is Furious, and so in December of 1769, that Bishop uh, Lamberg, who's sort of in cahoots with Dean Ekbaum, they bring it up to what's called the House of Clergy, and they were meeting as part of the government meetings called the Diet, and they are like, "This, ha- you know, we've ge- we need to try these ideas, basically, and uh, th- this is heresy, and something needs to be done about it," and. And there you see the church and state, uh, like there's a direct line. Part part of the, the the parliament or the diet, as you say, was divided into four houses, and one of the houses was the house of the clergy, and all the bishops sat in the house of the clergy, 
In fact, I believe Bishop Lamberg had become the uh, like the the head of it for that year, whatever they called oh, the it. the speaker, I think, or something. Yeah, right, right. That 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 he was. It was a rotating position. Um, but so it's not just theology as something separate from the government, uh, but it goes right into the government. You know, there's a discussion in the government about whether yes. these ideas are true or not. Uh, and so in December of 1769, uh, that this, right, the government with the clergy, they, Bishop Lamberg, the speaker is like, all right, we're dealing with this. And there's a particular, you know, uh, their ire is directed against Bayer and Rosen, um, and they're being threatened with being deprived of their teaching jobs because of their, you know, promulgation of Swedenborg's ideas. And uh, I just have to note, because it's at this time that Swedenborg writes another letter to Bayer in which uh, he's frustrated by all this, and he says this to what what is to me this famous line where he says they call this doctrine Swedenborgianism but I for my part call it genuine Christianity yes and I just love that that like you were saying Curtis that just totally shows it where for Swedenborg it's not just like oh disagreeing about different ideas it's like there's salvation at stake here you know like this is really important <laughs> yes this is bigger than than um saving face and exactly. it just clicked for me because when uh, you first read his response to Bayer, I was a little like, okay, Swedenborg, that's a little cheesy. This guy's writing you about his wife and Swedenborg's going off about like the spirits of hell and the descending of the Lord and just all this, like, I, I feel like I was like, is that sort of like unnecessarily dramatic language? But mm-hmm. then I, but now realizing, oh no, no, that that was meant to be something for mass publication. And so he was yeah. really writing it knowing like, okay, I'm, we're going into this super hard hitting arena that we're in. And the only way you can, you, you have to be claiming in this fight that the enemy is, is working for hell. Cause that's what they're saying about you. Yes. And really, I do think that he's, he feels like, uh, he's willing to like add fuel to the fire because, uh, he knows it's just going to reveal the truth, you know, like it's just going to come out more that these people have nothing to attack him on anyway. At some point, if memory serves, they actually, um, I can't remember when, but at some point in this trial, I think Swedenborg might have written to them or something, but in order to really attack this properly, you should probably read the works in question. Yes. (laughs) It was kind of a turning point for the trial because uh, nobody was going to read all that. Yes. And, and yet it was a good point that you're condemning something without having read it. So what about that? Now, wait a second. I'm sorry. Because I just realized that we are here saying that the, that the idea of reading Swedenborg's works was so unappetizing that it stalled out and derailed a trial. And here we are, <laughs> an organization devoted to, hey, everyone, don't you want to read Swedenborg's stuff? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So this official decree finally comes out at the end of April and Swedenborg's works, like Jonathan is saying, they weren't declared heretical, uh, but they were said to contain errors, even though like they couldn't make the full judgment about heresy because I don't think anybody was willing to read all of them. But they were at least saying 
we don't like them. Um, and so the council totally condemned, rejected, and forbade the theological doctrines contained in Swedenborg's writings. And all translations and reviews of Swedenborg's books were banned. And importation was allowed only with local consistory approval. And poor Bayer and Rosen were forced from their teaching jobs and forbidden to make proselytes and to address either private or public gatherings. So kind of it, it could be worse, but it was like they they made their opinion of Swedenborg's works clear with this with this decree. But it wasn't to be clear. It wasn't actually a ruling on the issue of heresy because they just they had to shelve that. They just couldn't um, address that issue. And so Still, Swedenborg, though, though wrong, yeah. wrong side of history. Yes, <laughs> definitely. In my humble opinion. Yeah. When Swedenborg heard the sentence that this had come out, especially that Byron Rosen had been kicked from their jobs, he was indignant. And so it's this week in history that he steps into the ring and puts forth this challenge because he writes a letter to the king. So because nobody in all of this was engaging with Swedenborg directly and they're all tiptoeing and dodging actually going after Swedenborg. And so instead, Swedenborg's like, I'm going right to the king, you know, so who gets the final say in any of this? And so this letter that he wrote or that's dated this week in history is really amazing because basically it's the only chance it's Swedenborg taking the stand you know he's never invited to in actuality but this is him giving his statement so I'm gonna read a good chunk of this it's very long but even this is only some excerpts so he writes most powerful and most gracious king I feel compelled at this juncture to have recourse to your majesty's protection for I have been treated as no one has ever been treated in Sweden since the introduction of Christianity, and still less since the establishment of freedom here. I will first give you a brief account of things as they have happened. So which he does. And he writes, When the bishop and the dean of that place, so meaning Lamberg and Ekbom, who are the torch and trumpet in this affair, discovered that they made no progress in the house of clergy, they, to stir up and kindle the flame anew, commenced a publication of 20 sheets or more about, quote, Swedenborgianism, which is filled with invectives. I received no more intimation than a child in the cradle of all that took place. From beginning to end, I received not the least intimation. All was done without my receiving a hearing. When yet the whole matter was about Swedenborgianism and the papers printed in Gothenburg, are filled with coarse and reprehensible language without touching materially the subject of Swedenborgianism, which is the worship of the Lord our Savior. Wherefore, I still insist that everything that has taken place since my return home has, from beginning to end, been done without giving me a hearing. In reply to this, I humbly beg to make the following statement. So he's like, nobody's asking me for a hearing? Well, here it is. <laughs> so he says... That our Savior visibly revealed himself before me and commanded me to do what I have done and what I have still to do, and that thereupon he permitted me to have open communication with angels and spirits, I have declared before the whole of Christendom 
as well as in England, Holland, Germany, and Denmark, as in France and Spain, and also on various occasions in this country, before their royal majesties, and especially when I enjoyed the grace to eat at their table in the presence of the whole royal family, and also of five senators and others, at which time my mission constituted the sole topic of conversation. So he calls it his mission. He's writing this to the king who invited him. That's right. He, he refers to him in the third per- person, but it's like, you know, you invited me to dinner. And we talked about that in another uh, yes. podcast a, a few months ago. And so he says, subsequently, also, I have revealed this before many senators, and among these, Count Tessin, Count Bonda, and Count Hupkin have found it in truth to be so. And Count Hupkin, a gentleman of enlightened understanding, still continues to believe so without mentioning many others, as well at home as abroad, among whom are both kings and princes. All this, however, the office of the Chancellor of Justice, if the rumor is correctly stated, declares to be false, when yet it is the truth. Should they reply that the thing is inconceivable to them, so which I love that he's saying, like, if their, you know, accusation is they just don't get it, I have nothing to gainsay since I'm unable to put the state of my sight and speech into their heads in order to convince them, nor am I able to cause angels and spirits to converse with them, nor do miracles happen now. But their very reason will enable them to see this when they thoughtfully read my writings, wherein much may be found which has never before been discovered and which cannot be discovered except by real vision and communication with those who are in the spiritual world. And so he goes on. It's just amazing. He writes, I am ready to testify with the most solemn oath that may be prescribed to me that this is the whole truth and a reality without the least fallacy that our Savior permits me to experience this is not on my account, but for the sake of a sublime interest which concerns the eternal welfare of all Christians. Since such is the real state of things, it is wrong to declare it to be untruth and falsity, although it may be pronounced to be something that cannot be comprehended. So I love that he's saying, like, <laughs> it's true. Go ahead and say you don't understand it. But, they just but don't, don't. They don't just don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, it's just so here's how he closes it out. He says, as this, however, concerns not only my writings, but as a natural consequence, my person also, I make humble request that the memorial should be communicated to me, which was addressed to your royal majesty in this matter by the House of Clergy. Likewise, the minutes of the Privy Council and the letter which was dispatched from the office of the Chancellor of Justice to the Consistory of Gothenburg, in order that I may at once be heard and may show forth the whole of my treatment before the public at large. Like he's like, come and get me, you know, try me. (laughs) And in respect to Doctors Beyer and Rosen of Gothenburg, They have become to a certain extent martyrs, at least so far as regards the cruel persecutions of the bishop and the dean of that town. The same expression also I apply to my books, which I regard as my own self, when nevertheless all that the dean of Gothenburg has poured out against them consists of sheer invectives which do not contain a particle of truth. So, your royal majesty's most humble and most dutiful servant and subject, Emanuel Swedenborg. Wow. And by identifying his books with himself, because his books were on trial. Yes. He wasn't. But he's basically saying, my books are the same as me, 
mm-hmm. and I'm being tried and don't have a chance. I, I really love your analysis. I never thought of it that way, that this is – he just sort of preemptively gave himself uh, the docket, yeah. uh, get up there and give his give his speech and send it right to the king. Yes, uh, nobody's because nobody's asking he's him not for even it. Yeah. being informed. He's, he's not even getting the minutes or anything. You know, nobody's telling him anything. Yes. Which they're, I think they're avoiding that very in a very calculated way because they know they can't take him down. If the theology that you're sitting on is pretty obviously nonsensical, and even though there's a lot in Swedenborg that's pretty far out there and people might think is comical, like spirits and aliens and stuff, but they probably are aware that there's other parts that make their theology look bad. And they're like, no, we don't want to really actually get into that. We don't want to have, right. let, give him the the mic. Exactly. People are often wondering, does being spiritual equal being passive? You know, would a right. could, could a spiritual person really write the kind of letters that Swedenborg was just writing? So here's a guy <laughs> who's immersed in the culture of heaven and has, has direct experience of the Lord and from all accounts, very friendly person. But when push is coming to shove, he's doing the opposite of saying, well, it's the right thing. That he's, he's not like turning the other cheek in the literal sense. Oh, yeah. Right. It never goes any further than this. So this letter that he writes to the king gets printed in multiple places like the other one and shared widely. And, you know, nobody ever takes him up on his his offer to, you know, come be tried. And uh, and so that trial for officially, you know, f- figuring out the issue of whether they're heresy never goes anywhere. It never gets off the ground. So um, even for Bayer and Rosen, they refuse to renounce Swedenborgianism. And so the case ultimately gets referred to the Court of Appeals in June 1772, which is after Swedenborg died. So they like the thing wasn't figured out, um, but it basically fizzles out. So the court decides not to act on it until they've heard from the Uppsala consistory, whose job it is to review Swedenborg's writings and rule on the issue of heresy, they just never do it. And so then years later in 1778, the Court of Appeals writes to the then king, King Gustav III, and says, you know, we still haven't heard from this Uppsala consistory about Swedenborg's writings being heresy. Can we just drop this case? And the king gives his consent for it to be dropped. So so it kind of it kind of was, you know, that letter to the king kind of was a mic drop in a way. Well, thanks, Curtis and Jonathan, for going on this uh, tumultuous and intense ride through the history of the Gothenburg trial with me this week. Oh, thank you. It was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you all next week inside Off the Left Eye. close out each episode of the podcast with a Swedenborg-inspired song. If you have a Swedenborg-inspired song you'd like us to share, you can email us at offthelefteye at gmail.com. Submit your song that way, and if you give us permission, we would love to showcase your Swedenborg-inspired music. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You're the best audience a podcast could ever have, so thank you for listening. 
subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out. And consider supporting our work with a donation. Go to otle.com slash donate. Anything you give helps make the quality and impact of the work we do possible. Our Swedenborg-inspired song this week is I Saw a New Heaven by Lori Odner. She's a new church musician and songwriter and is particularly called to a ministry of supporting people in the work of having healthy marriages. She is famous for her daily marriage motes, which are these written spiritual reflections that she puts out every day and which you can find at her website, caringformarriage.org. And so this song, I Saw a New Heaven, she recorded in 1975, and it's on her album, Songs from the Word. This song celebrates the new church, its beauty and power, and especially healing. And it's just this beautiful song that I have fallen in love with, and I feel like we'll just cap this episode off perfectly because it feels like the calm after the storm, after going through, you know, the intense and tumultuous history of the Gothenburg trial. I look forward to being with you next time we're inside off the left eye. But until then, here's I Saw a New Heaven by Lori Odner. Enjoy the music. And I saw shall be here.